This is the first time that we've ever done the podcast, just the two of us. It is. I'm very excited about it. It's going to be terrible. Welcome to Feeling It, a podcast where we discuss TV, movies, pop culture, and whether or not we are feeling it. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. And here we go. Come on, walk and talk. All right, here we go. You guys want to hear something neat? It's showtime! Hold your ears, folks. Here we go! See what you can do now. Take your position. All right, ladies, buckle up. Let's do this. Hold on to your butts. Seriously? Listen to me very, very carefully. Hey, it's me again. Eat him up. Enjoy. All right, welcome listeners, new and old. Everybody knows the drill by now. We're feeling it. We're about to do stuff. We're about to talk on a podcast. <laughs> we're about to feel. We're about to we're pronoun. But to feel things. Um, it's just me and Lost on the podcast today. So in addition to what we're feeling, we are going to talk about some news that we haven't had a chance to talk about in the last month, really. But before we do that, let's introduce, introduce ourselves. And because August was absolutely terrible at the box office, there's literally nothing I was interested in. What is your favorite movie with August in the title? Uh, I'm Lawson. I am an art director in Nashville, Tennessee. And my favorite movie with August in the title is August Osage County. Ooh. I'm also a fan of that movie. <laughs> 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 that was a really long ooh for something you're going to agree with. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm Lucas Wright, a desire for the Bay Area. And the only other option on the list is August Rush. That's correct. <laughs> we got both. Also of them. a great movie. <laughs> yes, I enjoyed that one too. Every week we like to talk about something that we discovered or rediscovered throughout the week, whether that be a film, TV show, music, um, some fine art. Um a city, whatever, you know, the usual. <laughs> Lawson, what are you feeling this week? <laughs> I mean, uh, based on the new things that you threw into that list, I yeah, feel no, like I have no, to come no up with No leading something. directions there at all. So. Um, so, yeah, this past week I went on a week-long trip with my wife, and it was really great. It was a trip through the Midwest, and we saw a lot of family, spent a lot of time in August in a place that was uh, under 75 degrees. So mm. all in all, a great time. Um, the one standout for me as far as uh, cultural art things that like really I'm feeling is uh, we get to stop at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Um, one of the things I loved, we stayed at Airbnb in Minneapolis for a couple of days and it was just such a great city. And so many things there are public domain. There are so many uh, amazing parks. Um, there's actually kind of like a, a theme or like a little kids fair slash zoo and all of it's free. Um, and so we got to go see so many different things that were really great. Um, but the Minneapolis Institute of Art definitely stood out for me. In particular, one exhibit called Now Where Were We? Um, and I'm just going to... Now Where Were We? Now yeah. We're, okay, got it, got it. <laughs> like, now where were we? There um, we go, yes. So, yeah, you have to say it like you're yes. a, <laughs> yeah. narrating You have to say it as, as an actual question. That right. Makes okay, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I'll just read off the description for the exhibition. Uh, what if an art installation bent the rules? What if it questioned norms of museum practice by replacing its traditional white walls with colorful murals? Or combined artworks not because they came from the same time or place, but because together... They spoke to universal themes of human existence, people, places, and things. Artist Dave Mueller asked the questions in Now Where Were We? His temporary reinstallation of Mia's contemporary... Mia is... Uh, the, 
Minneapolis Institute of Art, contemporary art galleries. Muller collaborated with Mia's staff to explore his vast collection, selecting and combining artworks from very different times and places, then integrated them into a new visual context of his hand-painted murals. Muller's extensive music collection streams through a listening station in the galleries, adding to the eclectic atmosphere. We hope you'll consider these artworks in a new way beyond their original time and place and join the conversations that arise from this new configuration. End quote. So I don't think I ever started the quote, but that is the end of the quote. Um, <laughs> I know that was a little lengthy of a description, but they do such a good job of concisely uh, kind of giving the gist of this. If you're in the area or are going to be nearby, it is definitely worth a detour. Um, and if you're in Minneapolis or um, are going to be going through it, then it's a no-brainer. Um, it's free. It's an exquisite exhibition. Um, there are so many great pieces of art in this, uh, pieces that I had never seen before, like uh, sculptures um, sitting on the ground, uh, enormous murals, um, also huge uh, oil and can canvas paintings. There are rooms where you could walk in and specifically hear different um, selections from his music collection. There are really, um, really cool paintings of the kind of like the spines of different records. Um, the way that they collected so many different pieces throughout the American experience, it talks about it being universal themes of human existence, but to me it felt pretty distinctly American. Um, there was uh, kind of a, you know, uh, a humanist bent to it, but it felt very set within uh, the culture of the, of the U.S. There was a bunch of innovations throughout the years. There's um, a bunch of like advertisement that over the year has become art. Um, but also uh, a really famous piece, Chuck Close's Frank, um, is, is 1969 piece. It's an acrylic on canvas, uh, is a part of it. And I think that's probably the most famous piece that they have at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. And they use it in this installation. And I was particularly struck by that because of what an affectionate act it would have to be to paint a painting of someone that large. I mean, it took up the entire wall, this portrait. Um, it was so, so detailed. I was super impressed every time that I paid attention to any individual brushstrokes. But also, it was a painting from 1969 that looks like it could have been a painting of a photograph taken today. And it really struck me kind of how Certain parts of our culture are cyclical. Certain parts of our culture are, um, you know, enduring. Um, some of it came down to the the type of glasses and the shirt he was wearing, but it just felt like uh, a contemporary portrait, but that the word contemporary was really flexible. So mm -hmm. the exhibition itself does a really good job of being an exhibition. All the individual pieces are amazing, but overall you leave the entire exhibition with a, a very profound feeling um, and a real sense of connectivity to uh, the world around you and for me to the, the country we're in. So. That, that's awesome. I always feel like any piece that is that size is interesting to look at period just of like the complexity of making a piece at that scale. Right. <laughs> and, and you get to see just like the like every little piece of it. There's nothing you can hide in something that large. And so being able to see brush strokes and stuff like that and get to really examine it, um, I think is really awesome. Yeah. So 
all of my sketches that I end up putting together are usually on like sticky notes because they're so small that imperfections are like, yeah, you yep. know, whatever. It's generally in this area, generally like this. Um, when you're that big, you have nowhere to hide. And it was just, he didn't, he nailed it. It was, I mean, Chuck Close is incredible across all of his work that I've seen anyway but it was great to be able to see that in person. For institutes of arts or museums like that, was there anything specifically specifically Minneapolis about that place? Man, well... I've never been to Minneapolis, so I have no clue. <laughs> many, one of the things I loved about Minneapolis is it felt like such a, a, a green city. Um, green is, is in recyclable? Like, yeah. Like clean or actually literally green? Well, literally green. It's the summer. In the winter, it's white. But in the summer, <laughs> it's very green. There was, I mean, there was so many lakes everywhere. There was um, one natural park had a waterfall in it, and it was just like a, a normal park that you could pull up to and walk over to. It wasn't like this big display tourist attraction. Um, I don't know. I think the thing about that this exhibit in particular was it felt like Minneapolis kind of, the impression I got of the city as a whole was that it took a, a very, uh, when when we all do better, we all do better kind of approach to being in a society, to being in a community, in a, in a city together. Um, it really seemed like they wanted everyone to flourish. Like the ultimate, the underlying idea to like a library is, oh, everyone should be able to have access to knowledge and to be able to expand their horizons and all this stuff. And so... We all chip it in a little in our from our paychecks, and then we fund these libraries. And I feel like Minneapolis kind of took that a step farther for all these other spaces, whether it was art museums or uh, natural spaces um, or zoos, things that, you know, whether you're, you're at the bottom rung or the top rung, you can come and enjoy it together. And so this, the exhibit, Now Where Were We?, uh, I feel like did a great job of tying together so many disparate experiences and kind of weaving it all together through this really, it was really vibrant. It was really colorful. It was really positive. Um, it was just a very hopeful view of what it means to be together in a community. And so, and it took all these pieces together, some that were darker and um, really concrete and some that were lighter and more abstract and made it into this like, beautiful collage gallery piece so that's awesome yeah it just felt, that's really cool it felt really encouraging i was i was really moved by it that's excellent well, i think what now we'll take a break and hear a word from our sponsors today we're sponsored by the socialist party um all of lawson's uh <laughs> picks have been uh have been preordained by them so that's where we're going today so socialism <laughs> is not always bad <laughs> No, I, I 100% agree with you. I think like that that's awesome. I have a completely different view of Minnesota in general since I've never been there. So it's, I think it's someplace that I'd like to visit for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. My view was just oh, here yeah. in this, and that was it. So <laughs> it was great to be there in person. I was like, I never would have known. This is such a cool town. That's awesome. <laughs> also, the architecture everywhere was incredible, just like Man. left and right. Sorry, I'm gushing. No, I want to hear about good. what you're feeling this week, Lucas. Um, well, I'm also feeling just Minnesota in general. I'm um, <laughs> we can just keep going. No, um, I'm feeling the opposite of Minnesota, which is California, which is terribly hot right now. Mm. Um, basically, the United States is either on fire or underwater, and it's mm. not great. Yeah. Um, in San Francisco, it was 110 degrees this weekend, what? and 
we all died. Literally everyone died. <laughs> it was bad. Oh, um, nobody has air conditioning. It's it's terrible. Um, it was also humid. The state actually caught on fire, and so there was smog, and it just the whole world fell apart. It felt like. Um, so I watched Wet Hot American Summer <laughs> <laughs> just to fit the theme. Um, the new TV series. I don't even know how, how this works with Netflix. So Netflix has the movie from 2001, Wet Hot American Summer. Yes. A couple years ago, they came out with a, I, I'm calling it a mini series. Uh, what is it? Last year? I, what, uh, I'm going to look it Last up. Day of Camp? Yes. Last Day of Camp, which is a prequel to the movie that happened, that that takes place. In 2001. Wait. So basically, they Well, the movie, the 2001 movie takes place in 1981. Right. And then the... TV show Last Day of Camp takes place in 1980, but it's actually 10 years later. No, 15 years later or whatever. And then this takes place 10 years after 1980. It's a whole it's a whole yarn wall of trying to figure this out. But basically, <laughs> you have 45-year-old people playing 20-year-olds, which is hilarious. It's so good. Um, it is. And I, I, I was trying to figure out what it is that I like about Wet Hot American Summer. Because normally I would say, like, I hate this type of comedy. Um, I would put it in the same category as, like, Anchorman and mostly Anchorman. Um, you hate Anchorman? I hate, I don't, like, I just can't get into Anchorman for some reason. And I was trying to figure out what it is that's different about Anchorman and Wet Hot American Summer. Okay. Because I feel like they're very similar. But I think what it is is Wet Hot American Summer takes it way past what Anchorman would do with their ridiculous... Um, kind of wink at the camera comedy it is way out there and i also think i just don't like will ferrell as much as everybody else likes mm. him so i think that might be a big portion of it i think you should um, watch Step Brothers again and reevaluate that opinion but go on that's the thing so i like stepbrothers i like stepbrothers oh, okay i don't like anchorman um i like i take that back i like part i like most of stepbrothers but there are parts of it that i'm just like this is stupid um okay i okay. also think wet hot american summer does smart jokes like there are some mm -hmm. you know dumb laughs that you get out of it but for the most part they're doing pretty i think unique comedy um and it's in the same style as you'd get from stepbrothers and anchorman but the comedy is on a, i think another level um and so getting to watch this miniseries this brand like a second miniseries that we've gotten from this team um is amazing and it's something that like we would not have gotten without Netflix. This is something that is yeah. ridiculous and is basically impossible to make with the amount of famous people that are in here. Um, it's amazing. They're like, and and everybody comes back except for Bradley Cooper, who is replaced by oh my gosh, what's his name? Adam Scott. Yes, in the replaced by Adam way Scott. Possible. In yeah, it's just it's hilarious and it's perfect. But the fact that you can get this many people in this show all basically in it because they love it um this isn't a huge hit or anything like that um but it is so funny and so well done and so ridiculous i love that we're able to see tv like this yeah so, i i'm assuming you've watched it all i have not watched uh 10 years later okay okay but, but you've, you've seen the original sh movie and then the show that came out a couple years ago yes first I day of camp last loved day of camp, the movie whatever so much and so i was thrilled whenever the tv show came out and i don't know i feel like you can hardly expect anything to be as absurdist as the movie was and so the fact that the tv show was able to take it even further was amazing 
Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm thrilled to I haven't, for whatever reason, I haven't felt a sense of urgency to watch this, but it's one of those things where I know as soon as I watch it, I'm going to love it. Because it's, yeah, it's Amy Poehler, it's um, Adam Scott, it has, uh, oh, I started that like I was going to know all these names. Michael Showalter, Michael Ian Black, mm-hmm. um, uh, um. the voice from <laughs> Bob's Burger. I, all these people who I love and who are so fun. Joe Ar- Artiglio, how do you say his name? Yeah, yeah. Joe, jo, t- t- no, wait. The guy from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Tertrulio, yep. Tertrulio, Tertrulio, Joe Tertrulio, that's it. Tertrulio, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, he's <laughs> amazing. I just like every every actor in this, like, in this world is in the exact same show the whole time. They all mm-hmm. are just going completely to 11 or, like, 86 the whole time and it's no other entertainment that i've seen has done that i'm sure there's other absurdist stuff out there like there's tim and eric and they're all all that kind of stuff but Mm -hmm. a lot of those are less married to like a narrative that makes sense and so yeah 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 i feel like a lot more of those are about just like people hanging out and being funny and stuff like this where not to say that this has like the like most intense narrative at all but (laughs) but it is all tied together in a way that is very cohesive and very entertaining yeah Uh, was that who was it chris pine chris pine yeah in the prequel series yep Uh, that's the other thing because people love it they just come in and are like hey i want to be a part of this um like kristen wig and josh charles and um who else came in for the i don't know it has some um, amazing cameos I was always yeah. very impressed. In 10 years later, uh, Jai Courtney is in it, who I'm not a fan of, but is absolutely hilarious in this thing. He's so good. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like I feel like it just it also helps you just fall in love with all of these actors. Like you just know they're having the time of their lives putting this thing on. Yes. Okay, I actually watched the behind the scenes uh, documentary. There was Oh a- yeah. There's a behind-the-scenes documentary that's also on Netflix about the making of the original movie, and it's called Hurricane of Fun. Oh, I did watch that. I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah. It's so... Another thing that I'm happy for this crew, because they've brought me so much joy, is that they got to make these other series, because watching the behind-the-scenes of the original movie is like, oh, they were trying to film a sunny summer camp, and it was raining and freezing the whole time they were shooting. Yeah, (laughs) everyone was cracking each other up and trying to be positive, but it was just seemed like such a grueling shoot. So it makes me so happy that it took off the way it did, and that now they've been able to do more of it together. Because they like, it's such a thing where it's like trial by fire. After that crappy of a film set, you all must feel forged together for life. So seriously, yeah, it just seems so much fun. Uh, but that is Wet Hot American Summer, 10 years later. The I would call it a season two of the Wet Hot American Summer whatever that's going to be on Netflix. But it really is its own series, season one, whatever you want to call it. Check it out. It is hilarious. All right, so we're going to go on to 
what is our main segment for today, which is just news. There is so much that has happened really the past couple weeks that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about. And so we're going to blow through all of this right now, Lawson. And what's going to happen is I'm going to tell you a news story and you're going to tell me if you're feeling it or not. Okay. Let's kick this off, starting with a Joker origin story movie. Not feeling it. You're not, you're immediately not feeling it. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. You've, you've heard of this, right? What's, what's. The atrocity that is happening here. So Todd Phillips, who wrote The Hangover, plus Scott Silver, who wrote 8 Mile, are going to join together to write, and Todd Phillips is going to direct, a Joker origin story movie that Martin Scorsese is going to produce. Now, this, to me, sounds like you're just drawing words out of a hat, ad lib style. (laughs) What is it? Mad libs? Mad libs? Just drawing words out of a hat and putting them on here. Um well, you and it's need... also not going to be part of the DCEU at all. Right. So brand new Joker, brand new story, just for fun. So you're out on this. I'm out. I mean, I'm always open to being proved wrong. Of um, course. And I see some of the logic they were going with, maybe, like, okay, we'll get the writer of The Hangover because the Joker is funny, and we'll get the writer <laughs> of The Eight Mile because we need it to be a, a, a gritty origin story um and uh, but it just martin scorsese in the mix doesn't make sense they really want to cast leonardo dicaprio as the joker it it is a lot of the rumor floating around Mm -hmm. and it just doesn't feel like any of it makes sense as far as i really like the way that marvel's made everything cohesive and that you can have um stuff that spans over multiple movies and all their faces make sense but it's like I'm fine if DC wants to do a different thing. You know, I, so many, yeah. for so long they did the Batman movies and that was always a rotating cast of characters. Not to say those movies were great, but it like, it is a way <laughs> to do it if you want to. Like, that's fine. I just don't, I don't want a Joker origin movie. One of the, my favorite things about my favorite Joker, Heath Ledger, was whenever he told multiple origin stories for himself in the dark knight which really drove home the point of the joker it's like a hundred percent agree yeah it doesn't the more you try to give rationale to the person the more you take away from the arbitrary malice and anarchy that he represents like he's a he's a symbol not really a person and that's what makes him an effective villain and so i think doing this like trying to say you could get here's all the, the ingredients you need to make a, a psychopath. Like, I'm not, I'm just not that interested in it. I could be proven wrong, but as for right now, I'm, I'm not feeling it. So you're... How do you... F- yeah, you uh, I was going to say, how do you feel about it not being part of the DCEU? I just, like I said, it's a way to do it if you want to do it, but just like, you, <laughs> you're putting all this effort into it. You're ramrodding this thing down our throats, like trying to make it something that you're pretending everybody wants. And maybe some people do want it, but you were so impatient <laughs> setting up this DC <laughs> universe. Like we got to get a thousand characters in two and a half movies. Yeah. And if you're going to do that, why are you throwing all that effort away when you were so frantic to get it in the first place that you sacrificed character development and storytelling? Yeah. Now we, the two of us passed on seeing Suicide Squad when we reviewed Suicide Squad. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, did you ever come back around and see Suicide Squad? I, when it was on HBO Go, 
I watched. You don't have to defend yourself, Lawson. You can say that you watched it. I no, I mean I was <laughs> mere words away from finishing that sentence. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, when it was on HBO Go, I started watching it and I got ten minutes in. Ooh. And then it okay. went off wow. HBO Go before I ever got any inkling of desire to start it up again. Got it. Got it. I get the impression you did watch it. Is that accurate? Oh no, no, still haven't. Still oh okay. Haven't <laughs> I uh, yeah, I, it's one of those things where it's like I thought I would eventually get around to watching it and have not. So, um, But they are apparently, uh, as part of the DCEU, making a Joker and Harley Quinn movie. Well, I heard the Joker and Harley Quinn relationship was super terrible. Like, maybe the actors might have had chemistry, but like the way that they laid it out was didn't make sense or was super problematic or something. Just like, was bad. So Basically, everyone's asking for no more Joker, please, is I think where we're at with this. For now. For now. Right. Like, I was open to getting, I don't know. Like, Jared Leto could have been a cool Joker. I'm not against that. There was <laughs> a lot of things happening up front. I was like, man, you're making this hard for me to root for it, but maybe if yeah. it happens, that'll be okay. And then the movie was just bad, and we have such a good Joker in recent memory. It just it doesn't need to exist. Yep. I agree. Okay, so you're not feeling any Joker or origin story movies. Not feeling joke or origin stories. I got burned out on the last joke, and I'm not here to give yes. it another chance. <laughs> Makes sense. All right, next on the list, True Detectives will be back for season three with Jeremy Selnier directing and Mahershala Ali leading the cast. Are I'm, you feeling it? I'm feeling it. Awesome. So you watched, did you watch both seasons of True Detective? I sure did. Yes. Did I, you hate yourself after season two? I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, it was bad. I looked back on season two and I was like, there was maybe 80 minutes of stuff that I enjoyed from season two, but spread out over like nine hours, that's not enough. Like, it, Oh no, not yeah, at all. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't work for me at all. I kept, I watched every episode waiting for it to pivot, for it to be like, now it's kicked in and it's good. And it just never did. <laughs> Yeah, so I loved season one, and Nick Pizzolatto's, ugh, Nick Pizzolatto's writing I thought was amazing. I thought it was incredible. Um, Agreed. Where he went with season two, I felt like was very sloppy and very... I get, you could tell that he did not have a season two ready. Um, he just kind of wrote one real quick kind of a situation. Yeah. Um, but the way, the amount of time that they're kind of giving this, letting him... I, I, I think he's talented. I don't think he's, like, terrible or anything like that. But I think you just need to give him time. And and the fact that David Milch is helping out with this season, I think, is going to be really exciting as well. Yeah, completely agree. I think... I think the truth for me is that so much of the show comes down to casting. Um, I thought... Oh, one second, I'm sorry. Who were, who were the main people from the last season? There was... Uh, uh, there's Taylor. Rachel McAdams, Colin Firth, uh, Taylor Kitsch, uh, Vitz Vaughn. Okay. The only bit of casting I was excited about from last season was Rachel McAdams. And she was the only person who I thought did very well in the show. The rest of everyone I was like, I don't know if I would be interested to see them in this kind of story. And <laughs> I wasn't. Um, yeah. And I think you're Colin right. Colin Farrell's pretty hit and miss for me, depending on what he's in. But yes. this was not something that I was interested in seeing him play. Yeah, Wedding Crashers, I'll watch it 20 times. But in here... Did I, I say just... Vince Vaughn or Colin Farrell? You said Colin Farrell, and I heard Vince okay. Vaughn. 
Okay. Also Vince Vaughn, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Same Vaughn. sentiment for Vince Vaughn. <laughs> yes, agreed. Um, so, yeah, season two, I agree. I think I think you're right. I think he had all the time in the world um, to write his first one, and then the second one was just like, they did it because it was popular. They didn't do it because it was ready. And so the fact yep. that they really took a step back and wrote this is very encouraging. But also the fact that Mahersh- Mahershala Ali is going to be helming it gives me so much hope because that guy is just so talented. I loved him in everything he's in. Yep. Um, I even loved him in Luke Cage, and I thought that show was way too long. So, <laughs> yeah, He was I'm, the best part of Luke Cage, I think. So. Oh, by far, by far. Yep. No. Awesome. So you're feeling True Detective Season 3. I want to love that show, so I'm excited for a chance to love it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that, I, we, we, I buried the lead there, but Jeremy Sol- Solnier, have you seen any of his movies? Um, Green Room, Blue Ruin, those are the two that I've seen. <laughs> I don't know what else he's done. Okay, <laughs> thank you for naming them, because I didn't... Uh, yeah. Those are both movies that I uh, would make the Movies I'm Ashamed to Haven't Seen list, because I have had both of them on different cues uh, for going on a year, and yeah. just know that both of them are kind of a hard watch, and so yes, I've been definitely off. Yeah, very hard watch. I think he's an he's an amazing director, I think he is excellent. I cannot wait to see what he can do with this uh, this series. I think one of the great things was having... Um, I think that was one of the great things about the first season was you had the consistency of having one director. So it really it re- really felt like a long... A one long continuous story. Um, whereas in the second season, having it kind of cut up by different directors, I, a, it might have improved it. But <laughs> I think that might have contributed to one of the things that I didn't like about season two. So I'm very, very excited to see what he brings to the table here. Agree. From everything I know about Green Room, I'm, it lends itself perfectly to a true detective story. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I cannot wait. All right, moving on. Next is something that I'm pretty sure you knew we were going to talk about at some point and that I cannot believe that we missed last week. Uh, new Taylor Swift. Mm. We ha- now have two new songs from her. It's How true. do you feel, man? Uh, well, I want to quote um, Joe McHale's character, Jeff Winger, in, uh, from Community, when he's talking uh, to Shirley about religion. And he says, to me, religion is like Paul Rudd. I see the appeal, and I would never take it away from anyone, but I would also never stand in line for it. <laughs> so that is how I feel about Taylor Swift. I see the appeal. Um, I can fully acknowledge that how catchy so many of her hooks in her songs are. Uh, but I'm not here for Taylor Swift. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not into it. I'm not feeling it. Um, I am happy for other people to enjoy it. And I'm not here to diminish their joy, but uh, I I can't get into Taylor Swift. Okay, okay, I respect that. I'm I'm a Swift fan from way back. Um, I would say OG. I bought her first album on opening or not opening day on release day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Physical CD. I stood in line and got it. Um, (laughs) I literally stood in line. Oh no! Yeah, I was there. I was there. I have had a very hard time with her transition to who she is now. I, I liked 1989. I felt like that was an evolution. This to me feels like a midlife crisis mm-hmm. very much. So I feel like she reinvented herself with 1989 and that's a great place to go. And this is, feels like a forced reinvention. Um, she needs to shut down her feuds. She has way too many feuds going on. 
and I'm there. What is the her, the her first song? The, the look what you made me do. Yes, look what you made me do. I have no idea who that's about. Is that Kim and Kanye? Yes, song? it's about Kanye it's, West. <laughs> but I feel like there's also a, a Katy Perry verse in there as well. So yeah. I mean, there's it, it's too much. Listen, she's not a victim. She can't play a victim. This this isn't what's happening here. She just needs to be a pop artist. That's all anybody wants from her. And that's really, I think, all she wants for herself. But she has too much white girl rage in her right now. Mm. That And this is how she wants to let it out for some reason. So yeah, we'll see how the album turns out. But the first two singles, I am absolutely not a fan of. Yeah, I... Uh... I will say that those are your words, not mine. You from a t- I will let a Taylor Swift do the Taylor Swift criticizing. I have uh, so many reasons that I'm not a fan, but um, but yeah, I agree. I when I when 1989 came out, I listened to it. I mean, plenty of times. I it's so catchy. It's hard not to enjoy it. Um, you and so many other my friends just really love it. And so part of it was like, I want to know. Because that mo- nothing was bigger <laughs> than that album when it came out. It's true. Um, it's true. But it's something that her public persona and like you were saying, all of her feuds and kind of the way that she perpetuates uh, a white female victimhood or just like her own victimhood. And it's just her, her – I'm not into her – her deal <laughs> if that's the way <laughs> totally well we'll see how the album turns out i have low hopes low expectations high hopes low expectations <laughs> high hopes, low expectations. i mean yeah weird you'll anyway. always we'll always have 1989 so we'll always have 1989 at least i will because you don't like it so yeah, you will always have 1989 i'll always have the <laughs> covers that came out later boom all right, and on that sick burn, <laughs> we're moving on to our next segment of things that happened today. Oh, man. So, today, Beyonce did something Beyonce-ish. Um, this is something you'll have to explain to me. I just saw pictures of people in hats. Walk me through what happened. <laughs> okay, so she... Wasn't that yesterday? Yeah, that's what I said. Exactly, yesterday. <laughs> yesterday, obviously. exactly. So... Uh, Monday was Labor Day, the holiday that we in the United States of America celebrate because it was the day that Beyonce's mother went into labor. Um, Wait, is her birth? When's her birth? <laughs> her birthday isn't always on Labor Day. But, is her birthday? Um, are, they, are we joking? I don't know what's happening here. Beyonce's birthday was Monday. Yes. No, I know. I know why we celebrate Labor Day. I'm just unsure. Oh, did she? Is is her birthday the day after Labor Day? Is her birthday the 5th? Her birthday is Labor Day. Her birthday is Labor Day. Okay, so you weren't lying about that part. No, Obviously, we don't celebrate it for that 4th. reason, but man, we're so good at jokes. Jeez. <laughs> oh, man. Um, anyway, uh, so a bunch of really famous uh, women of color r- made a really beautiful homage to her birthday, like a happy birthday wish by wearing the outfit that she wears in her formation video. Um, so they wore the kind of big, uh, wide-brimmed hat and the dark um, black kind of, like, tunic dress. And it looks so incredible. And they do this thing with, like, the brim down. At the end of the formation video, um, when she first starts saying, okay, ladies, now let's get in formation, she's... Oh, no, I'm sorry. At the very beginning, there's this uh, kind of 
springy percussive uh, string part in formation, and she like bobs her head in it. Her head is down, covering her eyes with the long brim of the hat, and then she mm-hmm. bobs it in this really hypnotic, cool way. It's a great piece of choreography. Um, and all these people recre- recreated that moment. So like Michelle Obama, Serena Williams, Blue Ivy Carter, all of these awesome women like took a photo in this beautiful style as like this really pretty happy birthday wish. And the pictures themselves are just super cool. That's awesome. Um, so it was all for her birthday. That's why this happened. It was all for her birthday because okay. we all owe her a lot, in my opinion. Yep. All right. Good <laughs> I'm to very know. Th- maybe not owe her a lot, but I'm very thankful for her. I will say that. <laughs> um, yes. So again, all these links we'll put in the show notes. So you'll be able to see what we're talking about. Um, so I'm assuming you're feeling it. I am feeling it. Yes. Awesome. Who's your favorite? Uh, Michelle Obama. That's, that's a pretty good one. Yeah. Pretty great. All right. Next up, we have news that is just breaking. Actually, today, um, <laughs> Star Wars has removed Colin Trevorrow from directing Episode Nine. Now, are you feeling it or not? Uh, I'm. I'm not feeling it. You're not feeling it. So you're a fan of Colin Trevorrow. I like Colin Trevorrow. It's more. I'm not like the biggest Colin Trevorrow fan. It's just more a sign of the way that this franchise is being handled, and I don't really know how to feel about it. Mm. So I don't know if I'm feeling it or not feeling it. I don't know how to feel about it. Because <laughs> um, yeah. it's it's not... It's being... I don't know if it's being held in too precious of esteem to where there's some really interesting creative things that aren't going to happen as a result of it, or if this is the first time something like this has been done and this is what's necessary and I just need to, like, trust it. I think it's going to yeah. take a couple more movies for me to really have an opinion on it one way or the other. Because yeah. they start feeling really... I know they're all the hero's journey, so in a sense they're all formulaic. <laughs> but if it starts feeling really formulaic and repetitive, like, that's not going to help anybody. No. I get it. Like, I, I, I totally do. I, I'm not, I am feeling it because I'm not a huge fan of Colin Trevorrow. I liked his first movie, not a fan of Jurassic World. Haven't seen Book of Henry, but obviously the reviews are coming in terrible. Um, my right. thing is, what they originally said was the, um, I don't even know what they're called, the episodic movies, seven, eight, nine, and probably onward, right. um, are going to be very Star Wars movies. So very, I think very controlled, very um, kind of of a theme, um, which I think J.J. Abrams works well in. I think Ryan Johnson works well in. You've got really strong directors, experienced directors who can put their own own spin and style on a movie while, while still keeping it within the realm of Star Wars. Um, now their plan was to make all of the spinoff films like the um, like Rogue One and the Han Solo movie, and they were originally doing a, what, Jango Fett movie. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those movies were going to be more stylized, more director's movies. So we'll get these young guns in here, and they can kind of make whatever the movie movie they want in the Star Wars universe. I feel like that's really gone out the window here. So um, yeah. I feel like they're, they're doing what they planned to do with the um, episodic series, also with the spinoff series <laughs> as well, um, which I'm not a huge fan of. Um, but I am a fan of them pulling Colin Trevorrow off of episode nine because I don't think he would work well 
in this Star Wars universe. If they want to give them a spinoff movie, that's great. Um, but overall, if they're they they're dropping directors like flies over there, yeah. I I think usually doesn't give a lot of confidence to a franchise. But I th- I have faith in Lucasfilms, <laughs> and yeah. I do think I do think this is the right move. Um, again, we'll see what happens with um, the Han Solo movie. But and like like you said, I don't want them all to be formulaic. I don't want it to be the same. But I really think those. Um, spinoff movies are a chance where you get to kind of play with the universe and kind of yeah. experiment. So yeah. and we'll I, see. I loved Safety Not Guaranteed, but like you, yes. I really didn't like Jurassic World. And no. So like <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> I that is the best example of what he has done when given a huge IP. So yep. that didn't give me a bunch of hope for this movie. Um yeah. But I thought with everyone, you know, guiding him along the way, it could come together really well, especially if some of the great character beats that came through in Safety Not Guaranteed came through in uh, in Star Wars. So, I like I said, I don't really know how I feel about it. Um, I just, it, yeah, I need to reserve. You have a lot of love for the Star Wars universe. It's I, totally fine. Yeah. It's totally fine. I do. I'm, I'm going to give him You just want it to be good. You care about it. I do. And you know what? If it's not good... That's okay. It's not the end of the world. I know that eventually a Star Wars movie is going to come out that is bad. And, uh, well, I guess all the prequels already came out, so we've crossed that bridge. Never yep, mind. we have definitely crossed that bridge three <laughs> times over. Maybe yes. two times over. Number number three wasn't that bad. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah. Um. So who would you pick, if you had to pick anybody, to replace Colin Trevorrow? Oh, dang. Put me on the spot. I am putting you on the spot. This is something you haven't thought over. I would be fine with J.J. Abrams stepping back in. I would be fine with Ryan Johnson continuing over. Even though I haven't seen episode eight, <laughs> I would still be okay because I have so much faith in him. Um, I would say I also would be totally cool with having um, – oh, what is his name? He did Arrival. Um, oh. He's uh, doing Blade Runner. Yes, yeah. Den- Denny Villeneuve. Villeneuve, yes. I would love yes. him as well. I would love for him to get himself a Star Wars movie. Um, I, I would also, yeah, go for it. I would love it if Ava DuVernay got to direct one of these, especially after her Wrinkle in Time comes out. Like all the visuals from that have looked so amazing. I would love it True. if she got a Star Wars. True, she would be great in a Star Wars movie. Man, <laughs> great if she got a Star Wars. Yeah. Probably all these people will. Like they're gonna keep going forever. That's the thing. Eventually, everybody's gonna get a Marvel movie or a comic. Everybody's gonna get a superhero movie if they want one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, basically, it's just now. It's just if you want to turn one down. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> yes. I don't want a Star Wars. Brad Bird turned uh, Episode Nine down originally. No, not Episode Nine. Episode Eight. No, Nine. He turned down one of them. Oh wow. Um, um, which I think he would be great. But he would. I also the Incredibles am, was so good. He would be great at that. Yeah, I'm also very impressed by people who would turn down a Star Wars movie. So <laughs> it makes me want them to do it even more. Yes. So. <laughs> oh, man. You were talking about a director turning down a Star Wars movie, and that, I guess the only other thing that made me think of was Ed Screen. Is that how you say his name? Yes. The guy from Oh, yes. I forgot. Yeah, yeah so he turned down uh, a role in the upcoming Hellboy. Movie. Yeah, in Hellboy. Uh, he was supposed to play Major Ben uh, Daimo, uh, which mm-hmm. was a Japanese-American uh, in the new Hellboy reboot, and it got a lot of backlash, and he stepped down. So let because me ask he's white. you. Yeah, because he <laughs> he's a white boy. He's a white man. Um, so 
let me ask you, shoe on the other foot, are you feeling it or not feeling it? I'm feeling it. I think it's something that's really interesting to do because we haven't seen that before of, of a studio announcing like, hey, this person's going to play this character and him coming forward and saying, you know what? I've heard you guys. I think I agree. It's probably a bad idea for me to play this character. One thing he did say is that he didn't know the character was Japanese, which I'm not completely sure I believe that because I can't imagine accepting a role that you really don't know that much about. Right. Um, but, I mean, he could have read the script and the script he's not Japanese. I don't know. But I, I respect it because I think it's a very hard decision. I also think it puts a lot of pressure on the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very curious to see what happens next, basically. Because basically, at this point, if you're the studio, you can't cast a white person next after that. Right. <laughs> you really can't. Yeah. So I'm curious to see what happens. So I'm excited about this because it's, it's like another person in the line showing that they can really think through this and make an effective change um like the if the producers aren't thinking about it and the casting directors aren't thinking about it and the director isn't thinking about it this is showing like if the the very last person this gets to the last (laughs) end of the decision line is the actor yeah and this is showing that even as an actor you can make that choice and you can say you know this matters and this matters for the way that we tell art, the way that we talk about our biggest stories, and I'm going to step down. And so it was like really, I was really encouraged to see somebody at that level choosing to step down for that. Um, I don't know. I don't know that like you have to, like I would have understood if he did that, like you, Mm -hmm. you know, you got to make a living. But that shows that I saw so many um, like actor, like, Asian American actors and all these people tweeting like, I want to work with this guy. Like, I think it's a good, a good sign for the industry. And I think it was a really smart move for him. Um, I'm with you. It seems a little bit unlikely that he was, he may be trying to put himself in a little more innocent of a position Mm -hmm. than he actually was, but he did a good thing. So I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see if studios hire him now that he has burned them before. So we'll see if that, uh, if that ends up playing into it at all. Yeah in his future so strong move strong move i think it's whenever you make a move and you do it for a moral reason that a lot of other people can see even though it may burn a bridge i think it will be good in the long run so i'm i'm hopeful for him on that note it's time for another sponsor from the socialist party (laughs) that had nothing to do with socialism i just wanted to throw that in there so Um. i'm just like pro people getting along and all helping each other out, and I, I put that alignment to no political party. <laughs> uh, humans in general. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up for us. Anything else from you, Lawson? No. Nope. I'm right. good. All right. Um, you can write us a review on iTunes. Please do that. We love it. We, we love do. all of our reviews. We email you individually as soon as you've left us a review telling you how much you mean to us. Um, and you can also write With us an email in which we will... Exactly, yeah. Uh, you can also write us an email at feelingitpod at gmail.com. And we will also email you a response telling you how thankful we are for your questions, concerns, comments, all of that. Um, and you can find us all on Twitter, because I am back on Twitter because it is September, at feelingitpod. Lawson, where can we find you individually on the internet? You can find me at Lawson West on uh, Twitter and Instagram. I posted a lot of pictures from that Minneapolis trip on there. So if you want to see other art installations and other 
pretty things around the Midwest. Feel free to check it out. And you can find me everywhere on the internet at Lucas and Stuff. On Letterboxd, I just realized that I actually liked Equalizer, which is a Denzel Washington movie that came out in 2014 that nobody's talking about anymore. <laughs> I need to see that. It's it's surprisingly good. I didn't think it was everyone else hated it, but I actually liked it. <laughs> so you should watch it. That's your homework for this week. Yes. Somebody watch The Equalizer. It's also, on FX. <laughs> if you did, have not yet gotten on Letterboxd, I'm also on. I want to encourage everyone listening to get on Letterboxd because it is a social network that should have a lot more patronage. And and I just followed Lucas and Sandra's lead and made a uh, list of my favorite movie for every year I've been alive. And it is so much fun to do. So check it out. He also liked Jurassic Park. Boo-boo. Loved it. Adios. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Go away, Rick. I'll see you soon, okay? That's it? Go home? Yep. Move along, Padre. Goodbye, old friend. That's it. That's our show for tonight, people. 